0: Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a critical day in Washington for Ukraine's President Zelensky. He's making a direct appeal to U.S. lawmakers and President Biden. Asking Washington for more aid. How Republicans are reacting as they demand priority for action on the U.S. southern border. With the full House set to vote on authorizing the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, Republican leadership appears to have support teeing up a vote tomorrow. Find out why Speaker Johnson now describes it as a legal step. Nikki Haley is aiming to cut down former President Trump's lead, with an expected endorsement from New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu tonight. Will his support help Haley to go head-to-head with Trump? Hamas terrorists appear to fire at Israeli troops from a United Nations building and Israeli troops searching a home in the Gaza Strip that was apparently set up for battle. Jason Perry has the latest on the war. The president of Harvard gets to stay on the job, but she is facing another scandal in addition to the backlash for her anti-Semitism comments.
1: THIS IS NTD EVENING NEWS. LIVE FROM OUR NTD GLOBAL HEADQUARTERS IN NEW YORK CITY, HERE IS
2: TIFFANY MEYER.
0: GOOD EVENING AND THANK YOU FOR JOINING US TONIGHT. AS THE WHITE HOUSE WARNS THAT IT'S RUNNING OUT OF MONEY FOR UKRAINE, THE UKRAINIAN PRESIDENT IS IN WASHINGTON TO MAKE A DIRECT plea TO LAWMAKERS. BUT REPUBLICANS ARE STANDING FIRM there THEIR TWO PREREQUISITES FOR MORE UKRAINE AID. NTD's Iris Tao is at the White House. Iris, what is Zelensky's visit like this time?
3: Good evening to Tiff. So President Zelensky is in Washington for the third time, but unlike his first visit here last December, exactly a year ago, when he got a standing ovation in Congress, this time around he's making a last-ditch plea to lawmakers to keep up U.S. support for his embattled country. Here's what President Biden was saying just now at a press conference with Zelensky.
4: We need to ensure
1: Putin continues to fail in Ukraine and Ukraine to succeed. And the best way for that to do that is to pass the supplement.
3: So both President Biden and President Zelensky were given examples of Ukraine's successes on the battlefield in order to push against the notion that Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia has not made as much progress as people wanted. Meanwhile, Zelensky also thanked President Biden for his support, at one point calling him our big friend. But his visit this time does come when President Biden's request for an additional $60 billion to Ukraine is stalled in Congress. We know that the United States has already sent over $100 billion Dollars to Ukraine, and now Republicans in Congress are demanding accountability over that money sent and also insisting that there are not, needs to be border policy changes tied with any additional aid to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Biden today is saying that failing to pass more aid to Ukraine would, quote, be the best Christmas gift to Vladimir Putin, while also saying this about potential negotiations over border policies. Watch.
1: We also need Congress to make the changes to fix the broken immigration system here at home. My team is working with Senate Democrats and Republicans to try to find a bipartisan compromise, both in terms of changes in policy and provide the resources we need to secure the border.
3: It's unclear whether the White House will be able to strike any deals with Republicans before Congress goes into recess later this week. But Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, who met with Zelensky earlier today for about half an hour, and comes out to say that he's not changing his mind when it comes to conditions, prerequisites for any additional Ukraine aid. Watch.
5: We needed clarity on what we're doing in Ukraine and how we'll have proper oversight of the spending of precious taxpayer dollars of the American citizens. And we needed a transformative change at the border. Thus far, we've gotten neither.
3: Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is urging House Speaker Johnson to keep the House in session to allow for more negotiations to continue over both Ukraine aid and border policies.
0: Back to you, Tiff. Iris, thank you for that update. House Republicans have been investigating President Biden and his family for months. Now, they aim to formalize the probe with a House vote on the impeachment inquiry. NTD's Melina Wisecup joins us from Capitol Hill to discuss.
6: House Speaker Mike Johnson says that the impeachment inquiry vote is a legal step and not a political one and he says that for a number of reasons but to sum it up he essentially says that there's information that they need that they're not getting from the White House for example documents from the National Archives. He also says there are witnesses in the White House particularly employees there that the White House is preventing from coming and testifying. The White House has pushed back saying that they have complied. They've provided thousands of documents from the Treasury to these committee chairmen although Republicans and say that there's still more information that they need. Here's the House Speaker earlier today.
5: We have no choice to fulfill our constitutional responsibility. We have to take the next step. We're not making a political decision. It's not. It's a legal decision.
6: And another reason the speaker says this is a legal decision is to enforce their subpoenas in court, for example, like the subpoena on Hunter Biden and the potential contempt of Congress charges that they may be pressing if Hunter Biden does not show up for that 9.30 a.m. deposition tomorrow. At this point in time, it's unclear whether or not the president's son will show up. The last we heard from his legal team is that they requested to do a public uh, testimony instead of a private one. However, Republicans rejected that and the chairman of these committees say they have not heard back from Hunter's legal team since then. President Biden, when asked about why he engaged with his son's foreign business associates, stuck along the same line of messaging that he's used throughout this entire probe. That is, that it's not true. We'll show you the president's most recent comments on this, as well as what Republicans were telling me just today about whether or not the evidence they have at this moment warrants a vote on impeachment itself.
1: I'm not going to comment that I did not. And It's just a bunch of lies. It's the oldest story um, that is out there where, you know, a politician takes money. And um, it's becoming more and more evident that that has happened. But we need to make sure that the American people are able to see the proof like we are seeing the proof. Joe Biden is innocent until proven guilty. We need to bring the facts forward. It seems to be every time they ask for uh, some records, something else is revealed. Um, so I don't think that we're quite there yet, um, and so that's, that's why I'm willing to vote for the inquiry.
6: So you can really see how Republicans are careful not to jump the gun on this. They'll say that there's evidence, but they're hesitant to say that the vote on the actual impeachment itself is imminent. Some are anticipating that this inquiry will wrap up by the spring, at which point it's highly likely that the House will take a vote on impeaching the president. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Wisecup, NTD News.
0: New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu is expected to back Nikki Haley. He is set to endorse the former South Carolina governor at a New Hampshire rally tonight. Can this help her to slow down Trump's lead?
5: NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Okay, we
7: good.
5: New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, consistently one of the most popular governors in the country, has been waiting for the right moment. Tonight, he's set to endorse former ambassador Nikki Haley for president. He's joining Haley at a rally in Manchester, New Hampshire, Tuesday at 6 p.m. It's the first night of Haley's three-day campaign in New Hampshire. She's been chipping away at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' lead. She recently received a $4 million donation from an organization backed by the Koch brothers. Her strong debate performances have helped her rise in the polls. A Real Clear Politics poll shows she launched into second place in New Hampshire, with the Florida governor dropping to fourth. Sununu's office has declined to confirm he's backing Haley, but the governor said in a statement, I look forward to joining Nikki at her town hall this evening. It's going to be a lot of fun. Sununu previously predicted that Trump would not win the New Hampshire primary. And if the numbers winnow down, if the number of candidates challenging Trump winnow down, especially if it's one on one, he loses. Can Sununu's endorsement cut down Trump's lead? So far, the answer is no. Last month, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed DeSantis, but he hasn't managed to move the needle any closer to Trump. Haley is gaining steam on DeSantis for the second position, but still holds the third place despite all of her recent attention. The Real Clear Politics national poll shows Trump averaging 60.5 as of Monday. Because of his dominating lead, most polls show a Biden-Trump rematch. But what happens if independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy gets on the debate stage? A Reuters-Ipsos poll shows it could hurt Biden. Overall, the poll of over 4,000 adults showed little interest in a potential Biden-Trump rematch. About six in 10 respondents said they won a third choice. Some 16 percent of respondents picked Kennedy when given the option, which helps Trump edge out Biden 38 percent to 36 percent. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Republicans could have a harder time winning the House next year.
0: New York's highest court has ordered the state to redraw its congressional maps. New York's 26 congressional districts will now be shaped by the Democratic-controlled state legislature. The decision upends a previous drawn map that helped the GOP win a majority in the House in 2022. In short, after the 2020 census, voters wanted a bipartisan commission to make new districts. But they got deadlocked. The Democrat-led state legislature took over, Republicans sued, and the court hired a neutral party to draw the lines. That was for 2022, and it led to Republicans flipping four seats. Now the court is letting the Democratic legislature try again. The order to redraw the map is likely to be challenged by New York Republicans. As Israeli troops continue to make their way deeper into the strongholds of Hamas terrorists, the more they're finding these terrorists within the civilian population. It also appears that some terrorists have been operating inside of and near United Nations facilities. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest.
2: Residents in the Gaza Strip continue to feel the pain of war between Israel and Hamas terrorists. People in Rafah, one of Gaza's southernmost cities, scrambled after an Israeli strike.
8: I was sitting with my children in a safe place. We saw the rocks of the house fall on us. A huge explosion was heard.
2: Meanwhile, Israeli troops are in quite the predicament as Hamas terrorists continue to launch attacks from within the civilian population. The IDF on Monday released footage from inside a home in the Gaza Strip that was apparently set up for battle. The IDF discovered several large explosive devices that were hidden inside bags labeled with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency letters. And inside this bedroom closet, two rocket-propelled grenade launchers, and on the bed, an AK-47 and a bulletproof vest. And on Tuesday, the IDF released more footage from inside a different home in the Gaza Strip. Another AK-47 was found here, as well as this RPG next to a bed, grenades, another vest, and this explosive device hidden within a bag that was facing towards Israeli troops. And a troubling discovery was made over the weekend in a video released by the IDF. The letters UN are circled in red at the top right of the screen. Then to the left, someone fires a weapon at Israeli troops from this building. This is a United Nations Relief and Works Agency School in Beit Hanun in the northern Gaza Strip. The United Nations and UNRWA did not comment on the incident. The United Nations has been calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, a move that was recently vetoed by the United States. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu showed his gratitude.
1: I greatly appreciate the American support for destroying Hamas and returning our hostages. Following an intense dialogue with President Biden and his team, we received full backing for the ground incursion and blocking the international pressure to stop the war.
2: And he said, although there is disagreement regarding how the situation in the Gaza Strip will be handled after Hamas is defeated, he added this.
1: After the great sacrifice of our civilians and our soldiers, I will not allow the entry into Gaza of those who educate for terrorism, support terrorism, and finance terrorism. Gaza will neither be Hamastan nor Farastan.
2: Terrorists not only fired from a U.N. building in the Gaza Strip, the IDF says Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon fired a rocket at Israel that was launched just 20 meters from a United Nations compound in southern Lebanon. Jason Perry in News. Harvard President Claudine
0: Gay will keep her job. The head of the Ivy League school drew backlash for her comments last week at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism.
9: In a statement on Tuesday, Harvard University's highest governing body said they have decided to keep Claudine Gay as president. Gay has faced calls from lawmakers and alumni donors to resign over her response to anti-Semitism. The Harvard Corporation said, Our extensive deliberations affirm our confidence that President Gay is the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious societal issues we are facing. During a House hearing last week, lawmakers asked Gay if calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard's code of conduct. Gay said it depended on the context. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is one of the lawmakers who had heated exchanges with Gay. She reacted to Harvard's decision on Tuesday. This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels. And the only change they have made to their code of conduct, where they failed to condemn calls for genocide of the Jewish people, the only update to the code of conduct is to allow a plagiarist as the president of Harvard the Harvard president is also embroiled in a plagiarism scandal. In a series of posts on X this weekend, investigative journalists Chris Brunet and Christopher Rufo shared their findings. They concluded that Gay copied entire paragraphs by other scholars, nearly word by word, in her Ph.D. thesis in 1997. Gay didn't appear to quote or attribute the scholars. The Harvard Corporation addressed plagiarism allegations in their statement on Tuesday. They said they first became aware of allegations against three of Gay's articles and the school conducted an investigation. What they concluded is that Gay didn't violate Harvard's standards for research misconduct. But they admitted that she didn't have adequate citation in a few cases. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News.
0: A recent poll shows a significant drop in support for teachers' unions. What does this mean for the future of K-12 education in America? Joining us now to discuss public education, we have the leading school choice expert and advocate in the country, Corey DeAngelis. Corey DeAngelis, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
10: Hey, thanks for having me, Tiffany.
0: Well, the 2024 election cycle is ramping up and a big focus is on parents and also school unions. Now, it seems since the pandemic and remote learning, a lot of parents have been finding out what exactly their kids are learning. And you actually have an opinion piece out on this. And you note that voters continue to realize teachers unions don't have the best interests of kids in mind. So why not? What interests are these unions focusing on?
10: They want to protect their monopoly, they want to keep kids trapped in their failing government schools. You look at Chicago teachers unions, for example, they fought to keep schools closed as long as possible to, to get m- ransom payments from the taxpayer, uh, to use that those closed schools as as arguments as to why they needed more money in order to reopen. Now they spend over about $30,000 per student, and last year data suggested that 55 Chicago public schools did not have a single student proficient in math or reading. And uh, they don't have the, the students' interests at heart, or the or the parents themselves.
0: On that note, speaking of Chicago, a poll is showing that of registered voters in Chicago, forty six percent have an unfavorable view of the teachers' union there. Now, is this an anomaly in Chicago, or can we expect to see this across the nation?
10: We should expect to see this nationwide. I mean, if it, if if, a, if voters in deep blue Chicago now have a net negative favorability for the Chicago Teachers' Union. This is like the uh, the worst-case scenario for the teachers' unions at this point. If you can't even get Democrat voters to support you as a teachers' union, that's a huge problem. And in Chicago, they found it, it was even worse among Republican voters, 52. Uh, it was a net negative 52 ranking for Republican voters in the area, net negative 20 for independents. And even Democrats in Chicago uh, suggested that they 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 argued that the teachers union there had too much influence over local politics in the area so if you can't even win over the the chicago voters you're you have something to worry about nationwide
0: now on the flip side in terms of school choice we've seen a massive increase in homeschooling now data from the washington post it's saying it's gone up by more than a hundred percent in some states how likely are we to see that play out in terms of the 2024 election
10: yeah, I think it's going to, the trend is going to continue because parents woke up. They saw that they want to raise their kids in ways that are aligned with their values. They don't want to send them to leftist indoctrination factories that we call public schools. And this has become a GOP litmus test issue for the candidates in the Republican primary. All of the major candidates on the debate stage most recently all are strongly supportive of school choice, including President Trump as well, who who was not on the debate stage. The the Democrats, Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom, people are talking about, he's a hypocrite on school choice, both of them actually sent their own kids to private school. Joe Biden went to private school himself, but then he tries to pull the ladder up from behind himself by fighting against school choice for others. The Republicans would be wise to to call this out more often because they want to expand education freedom, whereas the Democrats want to stifle it.
0: And on that note, in terms of the kids, what do you think is the best choice for them in terms of a better education?
10: I don't take a stance on what that education ought to look like. Uh, School choice is all about individual freedom. The public school might be the best option in your area uh, for some families. But if not, you should be able to take that money that's meant for educating your child to the institution that works best for you. That might be a conservative private school. That might be a classical charter school. That might be just homeschooling your kid in your own household. So it really depends on the family unit. And even within the family unit, uh, the public school might be the best for one kid and the private school might be the best option for another kid. Kids are unique. They have unique learning situations and styles. And that's why school choice is so important to meet the needs of every single student.
0: Corey DeAngelis, thank you so much for your time.
10: Thank you so much, Stephanie.
0: Up next, the federal government reportedly giving almost $2 billion to Planned Parenthood, including millions that were actually meant to save small businesses during the pandemic. Arian Posdar brings us the details. Former Representative George Santos appeared in federal court today. He's negotiating with federal prosecutors in hopes of reaching a plea deal. And which college majors lead to higher salaries? New data reveals the top five earning degrees. Find out which ones made the list after the break. Welcome back. Taxpayer money going to abortion organizations. A new government report shows that the federal government gave almost $2 billion to Planned Parenthood and other groups. NTD's Arian Pastar has the details.
7: The Government Accountability Office, or GAO, published this report on Tuesday. It shows that the federal government sent around $1.9 billion to abortion groups from 2019 through 2021. Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn requested the GAO produce a report back in 2022. On Tuesday, she commented on the newly released findings.
11: Over 60% of the American public does not want one penny of their taxpayer money going to fund abortions.
7: A poll conducted by Marist earlier this year backs up Blackburn's number. Marist found that 60% of Americans are against using taxpayer dollars for abortions. That's despite the fact that only about 40% of respondents in the poll said they're pro-life. Now federal funds are actually not allowed to be used for abortions. That's due to the Hyde Amendment, which was put into law almost 50 years ago. However, companies like Planned Parenthood can still receive the funds if they're assigned for other purposes besides abortion. According to Tuesday's report, most of the $2 billion, almost $1.8 billion, went to Planned Parenthood. Included in that are around $90 million, which were actually meant for small businesses as part of the Paycheck Protection Program. Blackburn says Planned Parenthood illegally took the money, which was specifically designed to help our mom-and-pop shops keep their doors open. NTD reached out to Planned Parenthood for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Ariane Pastar, NTD News
0: expelled Republican George Santos is talking with federal prosecutors about a plea deal. The former New York congressman appeared in court today on Long Island for a status conference. Santos is facing 23 federal charges that include misusing campaign funds and lying about his finances on House disclosure reports. He's pleaded not guilty. Court records show prosecutors want to ask for another status conference in a month or so so they could try to strike a deal with the ousted congressman. As of now, Santos is scheduled for trial in September of next year, although prosecutors say they may want to move the date earlier to May or June. Santos also told a New York City interviewer on Sunday he was open to a plea deal. He said he wanted to work to avoid going to jail. New census data reveals that U.S. income varies based on education, with engineering degrees at the top of the list. NTD's Stephanie Sikol tells us more.
11: Recent data from the U.S. Census Bureau's five-year survey unveils a median household income of around $75,000 in the United States. But individual earnings vary based on factors like location, gender, occupation, and education. High school graduates report a median income below $37,000, while those with a bachelor's degree earn just under $65,000. Engineering emerges with the highest national median income at about $111,600, but Washington stands out with those in computers, mathematics, and statistics, reporting $136,800. Statewide, engineering majors generally earn more, except in Washington. On the contrary, certain fields fall below the national median, such as visual and performing arts, education, psychology, multidisciplinary studies, literature, and languages. Despite varying incomes, individuals with these degrees likely contend with a national student debt exceeding $1.7 trillion, with East Coast residents facing the highest burden as revealed by recent Department of Education data. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News.
0: Coming up, experts tell lawmakers that U.S. sanctions aren't fully working. Loose enforcement and mysterious ghost fleets allow countries like Iran to dodge them. Lawmakers today focused on what happened during the APEC summit in San Francisco when pro-CCP activists ambushed and attacked Chinese pro-democracy groups. Sam Wong reports. And Javier Millet, now the president of Argentina, what's he promising and is he delivering? An editor who attended his inauguration shares with us the sentiment there. That and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Washington, D.C., meeting with President Biden and lawmakers. He made another plea for more U.S. aid, but the funding package is still stalled in Congress. Speaker Mike Johnson said the House plans to formalize President Biden's impeachment inquiry this week. He said this step is important to back up House Republicans' subpoenas in court. During the war in Gaza, Israeli troops found more traces of Hamas embedding themselves among the civilian population. Some terrorists have apparently been operating inside and near United Nations facilities. The leadership of Harvard University decided to keep Claudine Gay as president. She's facing backlash for her response to anti-Semitism and allegations of plagiarism. American energy sanctions on Iran and Russia are not having their full effect. The Biden administration isn't enforcing the sanctions fully, allowing these countries to use so-called ghost fleets to sell oil around the world. NTD's Emma Shee has more.
5: Iran uses a ghost fleet of more than 300 foreign-owned and foreign-flagged oil tankers to ship hundreds of millions of barrels of Iranian oil skirting U.S. energy sanctions. At a
8: House hearing Tuesday, experts told lawmakers that sanctions enforcement on Iran and Russia have weakened under the Biden administration. This permits these nations to use ghost fleets to sell energy worldwide.
1: Ghost fleets are often moribund, unsafe, non-environmental. There are accidents waiting to happen, uh, and they're often not insured.
8: International trade expert Adam Smith says these ghost fleets are not on the radar. They switch off their location transponders transfer goods from ship to ship, change their country of registration, and could have complex ownership structures, making it difficult to know who the owner is.
1: They're not actually ghosts. Um, And so there's still a way for them to be attached to the non-ghost world, be it insurance, be it infrastructure or otherwise. And again, it's focusing on the intermediaries that are not ghosts, right, that are actually in the real economy
8: a key player that's affected by weak sanctions enforcement. China. China.
9: China. China. China.
8: China. China is a very close partner to Iran and Russia. It's the largest purchaser of Iranian oil, which helps the terrorism-funding state evade
5: sanctions the most. So the country that's benefiting most from this lax sanctions enforcement is China. China's able to uh, purchase cheap oil, not just from Iran, but also from Venezuela and Russia as well. Mm -hmm. And um, its economy benefits from that well. Other countries have higher oil prices. Iran expert Claire Youngman
8: believes the U.S. has done nothing to stop oil sales into China. She says we should sanction the Chinese banks that make this possible. Emma Xie, NTD News. Violent attacks on U.S. soil happening right before the eyes of world
0: leaders. At a press conference today, the Congressional Executive Commission on China seeking to call attention to assaults committed by pro-CCP groups during the APEC summit last month. NTD's Sam Wong has the details.
12: Lawmakers today zoomed in on what happened in San Francisco during the APEC summit several weeks ago when groups of Chinese pro-democracy activists surrounded and attacked by pro-CCP activists on the ground. In November, violent scuffles erupted as California welcomed leaders of the Chinese Communist Party to the Bay Area carrying signs and banners, a group of pro-democracy activists seized the moment to speak out against the regime's atrocities against human rights. But the protests soon turned violent after they were ambushed and assaulted by CCP-affiliated actors. According to a human rights organization, the Chinese consulate made arrangements for them to attend the rally, even covering their travel expenses from as far away as New York. Chinese exile Zhou Feng Suo told me that San Francisco police did nothing to intervene. Instead, they stood by and watched. Uh, With transnational repression, normally we're talking about uh, 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 CCP's
3: influence here, you know, with their agents, but now we are looking at U.S. government, you know, actively doing the bidding with law enforcement.
12: Just ahead of the APAC summit, the city of San Francisco displaced all homeless shelters in nearby neighborhoods, even putting up fences in the surrounding areas.
4: To clean that up in terms of the physical look Just move people to other places simply because you want to give a a Potemkin village um, uh, to Xi Jinping so he doesn't see something that doesn't look good. And and again, uh, to kowtow as they did. I can't think of any other word that says it.
12: During the summit, some U.S. business leaders reportedly spent $40,000 just to sit at a dinner table with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Congressman Chris Smith told me that many corporate executives have not only neglected human rights abuses in China, they've also enabled the communist dictatorship as never before.
4: Did anybody in that apex summit, uh, particularly with the business community, raise human rights? Anybody? I don't think so.
12: The Congressional Executive Commission on China urged San Francisco police to investigate the violent incidents and, quote, pursue justice as appropriate. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News.
0: Javier Mila is inaugurated as the president of Argentina. Where is he planning to take the nation, and is he delivering on his promises? Joining us now to discuss, we have Marcus Shadgiss, editor in chief for the Epic Times Brazil. He just came back from Argentina, where he attended and covered Mila's inauguration. Marcus Shadgiss, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the
13: show. Thank you for having me.
0: Argentina's new president, Javier Mille, has promised there would be an economic shock therapy on day one of his administration. Has he delivered on that promise?
13: Well, I think he is delivering because, I mean, even on Sunday, just hours after he was inaugurated as the, country, as the country's president, he was dashing the number of ministries. He went from 19 uh, to 10. He, he previously had said he would go down to nine, so he, he dashed um, a number of ministries already on day one and said in his maiden speech um, that indeed there was no place for gradualism. What I have heard from sources on the ground close to the Millet administration um, is that they plan on leveraging their popularity. Let's remember, they got elected by a large margin um, with 50, 55.7% of the vote, so about 11 points. Uh, percentage points in difference and what I have heard is that they plan on leveraging their current popularity um, to, demo- to do the most radical reforms very early on in the administration while they still got that support.
0: And on that note, what was the atmosphere like at his inauguration compared to previous ones? Um,
13: I, I mean, it was just, just amazing. Uh, in terms of like excitement, it felt like a soccer match. Um, I mean, in South America, I mean, South America is famous for how wild crowds get at rock concerts and so on, but it was really, really something to see. People were very, very excited. Um, We talked to a few people on the ground and they were very, very hopeful that things can change, and let's remember, uh, they are right to be hopeful in some sort of change because they are currently at uh, over 140% year-on-year inflation. So lots of complaints about the economy, lots of complaints about security, and a lot of people were very hopeful uh, that something can change Um, leaving the current political establishment behind.
0: And Javier does have an economic background, but looking at geopolitics, what can we expect in terms of China? It seems Javier Millet has said Argentina wouldn't do business with China, but Argentina does have a lot of debt to China. So how likely are we to see that?
13: I mean, what he has uh, consistently said is that he would not promote bilateral ties uh, in any sort of deeper sense. But now being a guy that has a libertarian background in economy and uh, a promoter of free market reforms, overall he has insisted that he won't um, curb free trade with China. But what he will try to do is to avoid. Uh, bilateral relations that promote cultural ties or that gets major agreements going on that can um, sort of push Argentina further uh, into China's sphere of influence. But his concern was also a moral one. He has is consistently said um, that the problem with China is a moral one, the matter of communism and the matter of basically, as he put it, murdering uh, uh, their own people. So I think it's likely we won't see him pushing bilateral trade or or the like. But, I mean, he will have to work with China on a state-to-state level at some extent because Argentina is just that deeply uh, embedded uh, within the Chinese investment and the Chinese debt. Yeah.
0: And now in terms of the voters, it seems like it's not just Argentina. We also saw conservative long shots winning in the Netherlands, Ecuador. What can we expect in terms of other elections that are coming up, like Chile and even the U.S.? What's the likelihood of a conservative wave?
13: So, it's a very interesting moment, and um, while I was on the ground, I just returned this morning, uh, but I got to talk to a few conservatives from around the region and around the world. So, you have people like Herman Terch, which is from the European Parliament, from Spain. Um, You have people like Maria Fernanda Cabal, Colombian Senator. Um, José Antonio Cast, which leads the conservatives in Chile and I've heard uh, among them that the mood was one that this Malay election could be a turning point for a very strong socialist trend. Um, I mean, we can say Latin America, but even the, the whole of America with Trudeau in Canada and even Biden in the U.S., um, this whole progressive wave that basically just leapfrogged from country to country, taking them all uh, to the moderate or the hard left, what I heard from conservatives on the ground there um, foreign dignitaries that came for the ceremony is that they all see this uh, as a possible turning point, as a symbolic moment, and that's also that also echoes what Javier said uh, in his maiden speech at the inauguration in the Argentine Congress. He was talking about how just like the Berlin Wall symbolized the end of a tragic era worldwide, this election was also a symbol uh, of an you know an era changing in Argentina. So we'll see, but conservatives were very hopeful on that, and then of course. American elections are coming up, and if Republicans can secure a win in the 2024 presidential election, that will give a lot of, uh, I mean, just a lot of energy uh, to conservatives worldwide, even further than this Argentine election already has.
0: Marco Schottges, thank you so much for your time.
13: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Coming up, an arrest warrant has been issued for a foreign exchange student reportedly caught wandering into basketball star Steph Curry's home. Prosecutors say the 18-year-old from China had failed to appear in court. And in baseball news, Shohei Otani got the biggest contract ever, yet somehow helped his team financially at the same time. NTD's Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss when we return. Welcome back. A foreign exchange student was allegedly caught wandering into basketball star Steph Curry's home, saying he just wanted to get an autograph. But after failing to appear in court, a warrant is now out for his arrest. And Jason Blair has more.
4: An exchange student showed up to basketball superstar Steph Curry's home in Atherton, California. After apparently pressing a few buttons at the front gate, it opened, allowing the 18-year-old student from China to walk onto the property. Curry and his wife were not at home. However, their three kids and nanny were. Reportedly, the nanny told the intruder to leave, which he did. The student, Shen Gao, was arrested hours later. He told police he went to the home seeking to get an autograph. The incident happened in October and Gao was originally charged with trespassing. However, after failing to appear in court on Thursday, authorities have issued an arrest warrant. And now the charge has been increased to aggravated trespassing, which according to San Mateo County District Attorney Stephen Wagstaff is entering someone's residence while they are there. Jason Blair, Entity News.
0: And in more sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, new details have emerged on Shohei Otani's record-breaking contract, with most of the money being deferred until 2034. What's the advantage of this?
1: Well, the advantage is what it allows them to do now, which is more spending room to surround him with better players. You know, Not they don't have a, a bunch of good ones already. I mean, they've won the division title 10 of the last 11 seasons already. Uh, now, specifically, he's going to be paid just $2 million a season over the 10 years of this contract. And then the remaining $680 million will be paid over the following 10 years. Now, I've never seen anyone defer anywhere near this much money, either in percentage or total amount. I mean, he'll be fine, of course, because he makes like $45 million a year in endorsements already. Hopefully, it allows the Dodgers, you know, to get some more pitching for next season because Otani is not pitching. Kershaw is also injured. Uh, so they've got a glaring hole there
0: now baseball doesn't have a hard salary cap but they do have something similar called a luxury tax how will this affect
1: it well he won't only count two million dollars a year so they don't catch a break with that but he won't count 70 million dollars a year either Basically, what they do is they, they try to take the present value of a contract, divided by the number of years. His reportedly comes to $46 million a season, which is still the highest in the game. Now that's just for luxury tax purposes, of course. Now the threshold for this is going to be $237 million next year. Any team whose payroll is over that is going to be taxed a certain percentage of the overage, depending on how many years they've been over it, and the Dodgers were actually over it last year already. Uh, in any case, they're still paying them a whole lot less than actual salary. But uh, the other side is they've got a $680 million liability for the next decade. So hopefully it works out for them.
0: Well, now shifting gears to the NFL, it would appear the Kansas City Chiefs have changed their tone regarding the officiating Sunday. What changed for them?
1: Well, it sounds like they saw the replay. You know, to rehash this, the Chiefs had an amazing 49-yard touchdown via pass and then lateral. Called back because someone lined up offsides. Now, Patrick Mahomes was livid after the call. It more or less cost them the game. And it's hardly to say they gained much of an advantage from someone lining up offsides to begin with. Uh, but, you know, a line has got to be drawn on that somewhere. The replay sh- clearly showed he was offside. In any case, Mahomes, to me, really showed why he was liked yesterday. In a radio interview, he said he saw the replay. He realized they did make the right call, and he seemed to regret his outbursts after the game, saying, you know, it wasn't a great example for the kids that were watching. Now, sometimes in cases like these, the league does find a player, but uh, no announcement has been made on that yet, though.
0: now looking at golf news there were rumors this week that another prominent player could defect from the pga to live what's the latest on that
1: yeah tony finau he's ranked 21st in the world uh, there was rumors that he was going to be following John Rahm to live. Uh, now, Rahm, of course, shocked the world last week with his defection. But Finau posted last night on Instagram that he was looking forward to playing his 10th season with the PGA. So it appears they dodged a bullet. Now, this became news last week when he was rumored to be following, going to live. He declined to comment on it. This also says a lot of st- about the state of the PGA, that someone sticking with them has actually become news now. Now, for the PGA, they're still in negotiations with Liv. They've set a deadline for the 31st of December to get this merger done. There's been no update on that. But I can't imagine trying to poach their players. has made for very peaceful negotiations. A
0: lot there. as Well, as always, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thanks, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.